So Numbers chapter 13, um, had it picked for a while, page 165 if you're using the Bibles there. Had it picked for a while, and I, like many churches across the world, this is just God. Um, you can look at it and go, wow, it has really great application to what we're currently going on. I, I've seen several pastors saying, I picked this eight months out, I picked this six months out, and there's no way I would have known what was going on. Well, that's God. And so churches are experiencing that across the, the world, and isn't God good? right? And, and there are different passages, right? It, it may be that we're doing Numbers 13 and someone's doing New Testament something, and yet God, because it's his word, and he knows the people that are in this group here and watching these videos here, he knows what we need. And so he's going to speak to it to us through his word. And so as we, as we get ready to go to Numbers 13, there's a few things we need to kind of catch up on. Um, we've been looking at Moses the last few weeks, and we've seen Moses bring the people out of Egypt with great power by God's uh, miracles, the wonders that he's done. We call them the 10 plagues, right? He has delivered the people out. We saw one week where he took them to Mount Sinai and there God made a covenant with him. We talked about how that covenant pictured marriage vows, how one, one person was committing to the other and then the other was committing uh, back. And so there was a, a picture of commitment there. And then uh, last week, I believe was, we, we looked at how God dwells among his people, how God uh, came and filled the tabernacle with his glory as the, as the presence of the Lord filled that, that temple, uh, that tabernacle, that tent there. And so since then, the people have continued to, to move toward the land that God has given them, the land that God had given to Abraham some 400 years ago and that he has promised to bring his people back into. God is moving them towards that as they go through the wilderness. And where we pick up today is they're going to be uh, just outside of that lamb, just on the south side at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they're going to camp out there for a while, but this is, this is where they are. And Moses is going to send some scouts ahead. And this is the familiar story to some of you if you've grown up in church or if you are familiar with some of the maybe more popular Sunday school stories, this is one that you're going to be familiar with, the, the, the spies of Israel, the 12 spies that were sent out to go and spy out the land. That's what we're looking at this morning. So Moses, um, by the direction of God, sends out a representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, that's where we're going to be picking up this morning. But as we get there, um, you know, there's times where when you're facing something, when you are faced with a task or a challenge or project, you're faced with obstacles to that. And sometimes when you look at those obstacles or when you look at the challenges, it's very easy to see what's right in front of you. It's very easy to look at your physical circumstances, to consider what you can see and what you can understand and process, and to become overwhelmed by the task in front of you. Right? It's, it's all too easy for us to look at situations that are out of our control, that are much larger than us, and to think, who am I that I could do this? How am I going to do this? God, if you've called me to do this, how can I possibly if? And we get consumed and overwhelmed by the things that are in front of us. Are we in a spot like that today? Yeah, I think many of us are. And whether it's the virus itself or you were already going through stuff because some of you have already been going through stuff and you're looking at it going, how do I live? How can I press on? How can I continue to, to, to carry on, provide for my family, to live out my, my faith, to, to do whatever it is that God's calling me to do? Maybe it's how do I disciple people? How do I minister to my family? Whatever the case may be, but you're looking at it going, it's too big for me. I can't, I can't do that. 
And you know when we start to focus on those things, how it chokes us out, how it tends to squash us, how it tends to smother us. But do you know the experience of having a different perspective? Do you know the experience of, but if I shift my focus from what's in front of me, and as believers in Christ, we shift it to who God is. And we, we place our mind, the New Testament, Paul would say it this way in Colossians, set your mind on things that are above, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Right? When we take a perspective like that, sometimes we might call it an eternal perspective. Sometimes we might call it a kingdom perspective. What we're saying is, I'm looking beyond my current situation and circumstances. I'm looking back on what God has said. I'm trusting in how he's leading right now and who he is, and I'm looking to what will be. That tends to change the way we live, doesn't it? That tends to change the way we approach a crisis. It tends to change the way we approach stress and anxiety. And so this morning, that's, that's what we're going to see is those two different perspectives. And we can either focus on giants or we can focus on God. So what happens when we focus, though, on giants? Let's take a look. We're going to be in, in Numbers chapter 13 to start off. When you focus on giants, Numbers chapter 13, and we're going to start with verse 31. So the spies have been sent out. They've gone through the land. They've come back now, and they are giving their report. And as you know, there are two spies who have a positive report, and 10 spies who have a negative report. Here's the 10 spies who have a negative report when you focus on giants. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against these people because they are stronger than we are. Verse 32, then they presented the Israelites with a discouraging report of the land they had investigated, saying, the land that we passed through to investigate is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there are of great stature. Verse 33, we even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers, both to ourselves and to them. So as these spies, 12 total, went out into the land, they all saw the same thing. As we live our lives, we are all going to experience some of the same experiences, but the way we view those experiences may be different. You may have a friend, you may have a coworker, a family member, you're going to go through the same experiences, but the way you view those experiences, the way you interpret those experiences may differ. And that's exactly what happened here as these 12 spies went out. Ten of them come back, and having seen uh, the, the people of the land, they traveled to several different cities all throughout the land. Forty days. Forty days they worked their way through this land, kind of scouting out what do the cities look like? Are they fortified? What do the people look like? And what they noticed as they traveled throughout this land is that several of these cities had people who were unusually tall. They looked like giants to them. And, and they, they, as they went through the land, they found out more about who these giants were. And so you saw in verse 32 there, the land that we passed through to investigate, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there are of great stature. They're tall. 
They're big. They're mighty warriors. And so the people are looking at this and they're going, we can't do this. I remember this is very trivial by way of example, but I think you'll get the point. I, I was a competitive swimmer throughout uh, elementary all the way through high school. And uh, this applies to anything you've competed in, but there was a time in, in, the, in the swim meets when you would, you would get up to the block, right? Now, um, uh, my height is average across the world. I'm 5'9". My wife just said, if she's watching, you're lying. You're five, eight and three quarters. But we round up, and my license says 5'9". Right? Now, across the world, I'm average. In fact, I'm above average across the world. In fact, I, I'm taller than the people in the biblical days were because they averaged about five feet. But here in America, and among many of you, you might not see me the same way. Right? But when I would stand up to, a, to, a, to the block to race, before you would get on, you know, you've watched the Olympics, you see Michael Phelps doing his thing, right? I'm certainly no Michael Phelps, right? right? So, but you would, you would look at the guy to your right, you'd look at the guy to your left, and, and if they're taller than you, here's what's going through my mind. Oh, they've got a longer reach. They already are half a body length ahead of me just when we are in the water together, right? And so, so you're thinking you're sizing them up, right? And, and so in your mind, you're having to psych yourself out, but that doesn't matter. Good start, good turn, quick arms, efficient pull, uh, a steady kick, right? Uh, strategic breathing, right? You're just focusing on that stuff. And hey, I may have worked harder than this guy. I don't know, right? But you start to get intimidated if you're not careful by the size. You look over here and you go, got him, right? So you, you've been in situations where you look at someone's size, or maybe it's not physical size. Maybe your situation is you look at someone's wealth. Maybe you look at someone's success in whatever it is they do. Maybe their position in the job. Uh, military, it's the rank, Right? I mean, you look at these things and you allow what you see before you, what's physical, to intimidate you. And based on giving in to that intimidation, that experience now is colored by that fear. And you're, you are now going through your, your experience going, I can't, I can't. There's no way. There's no way. Or I can't approach that person like this. I can't say that to my parents. I can't say that to my brother, to my boss, right? You, we've all been in situations where physical has intimidated us. And that's what these guys are going. They're going, look, we saw they are all of great stature. If we're going to go in and, and take these cities that, that God has given to us, I'm not sure we can do it based on what we've seen. Because these people are tall. These people are mighty. Now, they go on a little further to describe these people in verse 33, and they, they said, um, the Nephilim were there. Now, do you remember that term? Uh, we, we did a sermon on it back, uh, I want to say it was January 12th-ish. It was the second week of the year. It was the second sermon of the year. If you did not watch that and you're curious about that, you can go back and watch that because I'm not going to rehash that. But in there, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, particularly verse 4, we saw the Nephilim. Right? And what I said to you that day as we were teaching is that I've come to the conclusion, this is me personally, I've come to the conclusion as I've studied the scriptures that the Nephilim, spoken of in Genesis 6-4, were spiritual beings mixed with human beings. Because there was a, there was a Genesis 6, 1-3, it talks about the sons of God, uh, new intimately, new in the biblical sense, because I see some kids in the room, new intimately, uh, the daughters of men. And then I think verse 4 in chapter 6 connects the Nephilim to the result of um, that relationship. 
And then, um, then we see that these, these spirit beings, um, these, these divine beings of somehow, these, these kind of half-breeds is what we call them, um, they were giants. They were, they were tall. But they would have gotten wiped out in the flood, right? But somehow in Numbers, we find them again. We find them again in Numbers, and, and they're, they're associated with this guy named Anak. They're sometimes called the Anakim. In other places, you're going to see them called different names, Amim, sometimes E-M-I-M. Sometimes you're going to see them called Rephaim, and they're talking about these people groups that are noted for their stature, and there's certain places in the scriptures where they're all connected with the Nephilim. So you have to, you have to wrestle with, well, how did they get on the earth still after the flood? Lots of different theories. They are all theories because we don't know. So pick your favorite theory, the one that makes the most sense, the, most, uh, the one that is most um, honest with regard to intellect, the most honest with regard to the scriptures. I'm not even going to get into that. We can talk about that sidebar if you want to. But leave it, leave it to this, though. They look at the people in the land and go, the Nephilim were in, the, in there in that day. And they're related to this guy named Anak. And because they're in the land and they're scattered down across the cities, we cannot overtake them. Now, the Nephilim back in Genesis 6-4 were a competition against God's, God's plan. You see, these were, these were people that were, were born as a result of a rebellion against God. And so the, the children that were born from this, this union... They represent opposition to God. The people who are related to this union, to these, these descendants, they represent opposition to God. And God does not stand for opposition. And he does not allow rebellion against him to continue. And so part of what you're going to see as you continue to read through is that you're going to see God directing his people to go into the land. Some people, some people, he is going to direct them to completely wipe them out. And if you dig a little bit into which people that are, I think what you're going to find is the people that God tells his people Israel to wipe completely out are the people that are associated with the Nephilim. Because those lines represent opposition to God. Now, it doesn't make it any easier to grasp why would God uh, tell people to go wipe people out, but that's one of the things of the Old Testament that we often wrestle with. And I think if you understand it through this lens that these people, they weren't just regular people. They represent people that were mixed, that were a result of unholy, rebellious relationships between divine beings and humans. And God would not stand for that rebellion to persist. And so he sends his people in there. But before they get there, they, they look in the land and these 10 spies say, we can't do this. We can't do this. These people are too big. They're too tall. And listen, sometimes, sometimes the physical things that we are intimidated by, one, we don't understand the whole picture. Because sometimes the things that we are intimidated by are backed by spiritual rebellion. Sometimes the things that we are facing that are, that are potentially going to stop us from following the Lord, from trusting the Lord, from operating in faith, sometimes the things that are, that are keeping us paralyzed, they're not just purely physical. Sometimes those things are backed by some kind of spiritual rebellion. One of my goals as we're going through this, this, this preaching plan is that where, where I can, I want to help you see the supernatural worldview of the Bible. 
I want to help you see the way the people of the Bible would have understood the world at that time. We tend to look at it from a Western mindset, from an American mindset, from a, a logical mindset, from a naturalistic mindset. And so we tend to discount things that are seen to be supernatural. And we only allow the supernatural to, to fit in a category if, if it's something that we're comfortable with, say like God. God's supernatural. The Trinity the Trinity is supernatural. Well, angels, I, I'm, I'm good with angels. But, but that, that's about the, the limit for most of us because beyond that, we start to get uncomfortable. And so what I want to do as we go through is I'm trying to point out to you, here's how the people in the Bible times understood the world. And here's how they thought. And therefore, here's how the people who wrote to them wrote. Because we tend to separate natural and supernatural. And they did not. There was no category for natural in the sense of modern scientific terms. When they, when they thought of world events, when they thought about people groups like the Anakim here, they're looking at it going, there's supernatural involved here. And I want us to recover that for our sakes because I think too often we discount supernatural things. And we look at something and we go, the natural explanation for this is this. And we miss maybe what's really going on. And we miss maybe what God is really calling us to do. And so these people, they didn't just have a physical intimidation problem. There was a spiritual intimidation problem there. They said to themselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, both to us and to them. Have you ever looked at someone, compared yourself to someone or to some situation and, and thought some version of, I, I look and I feel like a grasshopper. I'm nothing. I'm small, I'm insignificant. How could I? That's where they're at. How, how am I supposed to, to do this? We were like grasshoppers. We're down here and they're up there. You know, sometimes the way we compare ourselves to others, if we're, if we're not careful what typically happens, whether it's on social media or whether it's on Sunday morning or Wednesday nights or in the workplace, we're comparing ourselves our unfiltered self, all that we know about ourselves to what someone else is filtering for us to see. Right, because if I'm on social media, most of us, most of us post the best moments of our day. Most of us post the best angles of our face. Most of us share the best things about our life, right? Most of us brag about the things that are going well in our lives. But most of us don't put on those platforms, the things that are not going well, the places where we failed. Uh, most of us don't take unflattering angles uh, for the pictures that we put on there, right? We, we, we don't do that. But what happens is all of us know that, and yet then we compare ourselves to someone else's filter. But what we're doing is we're not comparing our filter to their filter. We're comparing our unfiltered to their filtered. Or if you get here on Sunday or you're in your workplace or you're, you're around somebody for a couple hours a week, what you see is what they're presenting to you oftentimes. And what you compare yourself to is what they want you to see. But you have no clue what's really there. And so you know everything about your life. You know all the dark places in your life, the thoughts that go through your mind, the habits that, that you have that you're trying to cover up. And yet you compare all of that baggage to what someone else just wants you to see. And so when you do that, you feel like a grasshopper, most of you. Some of you look at the guy to the left and you go, <laughs> gotcha, right? But most of us at some point, we feel like a grasshopper. That's what happens when you focus on giants. 
it's what happens when you focus on the situation, the circumstances that are in front of you, and it seems overwhelming, and I get consumed by that. But there's another way. Because when you focus on giants, you operate within your parameters. What I can do, what I can't do, what's not possible for me, what are my limits. When you focus on giants, you operate within your parameters. When you focus on God, you operate within his parameters. When you focus on giants, you're, you're gonna be motivated by what I'm limited by, what are, what are my options, but when you focus on God, you're no longer limited by what, what my parameters are, you are now limited by what his are, and guess what? They're not there, right? They're, yeah, there's certain things God can't do. He can't lie, right? Things like that, but, but you understand what I mean? That when I'm focusing on God, I'm not going to see the situation that's in front of me and think, I can't. I'm going to instead go, but he can. He will. And that's the other two spies that we see. So we're going to go to Numbers chapter uh, 14. And this is what it looks like when you focus on God. Numbers chapter 14, we're going to be in verse 6. So 10, 10 of the 12 said, we can't do this. There are giants in that land. And we are like grasshoppers. But then there was two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Chapter 14, verse 6. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, two of those who had investigated the land, tore their garments. They're tearing it out of mourning because these people are bringing the negative report and people are responding to that. So they're, they're tearing their garments in, in desperation here. Verse seven, they said to the whole community of the Israelites, the land we pass through to investigate is an exceedingly good land. Let's stop. First off, this is the land that God's bringing us to. It is exceedingly good. It's, it's all that God said it would be. There's great provision in there. They had brought back some grapes. Oftentimes, it's described as a land that's filled with milk and honey. They're saying this land is good land, right? It, it, it's, it's some of the best. We go on, verse eight. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Here's their perspective. If the Lord delights in us, and the assumption that they're making is, and he does. Now, how can they make that assumption? Because God just took these people, this nation, out of Egypt, went through great lengths to do these things, these wonders among the people of Egypt to show them there's no God like me. There's no God greater than me. And I am a God who is bringing my people out of enslavement. Furthermore, by this point, they've been led by God as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's guided them. He's provided for them food, water, and he's led them to this land. Now, even before that, God showed himself as a faithful God who is a, a God who extends grace because he revealed himself to Abraham. And you might remember Abraham. Abraham came right out of the middle of the rebellion in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Because the people at the Tower of Babel, Babylon, right, they built this tower and God disperses them. And then in Genesis chapter 12, the very next thing that God does is he takes a man right out of that same region. And he says, Abram, I want you to leave your family and follow me to the land that I will lead you. God takes a man who was not a God worshiper at that time. Abraham would have been likely just like every other person of his day, worshiping multiple gods. I want you to leave your family and I want you to follow me to the land. This is God who shows his favor to people who are undeserving, who shows his grace to people that, though they've not done anything to earn it. 
And so Joshua and Caleb, they have that perspective of God and they say, if the Lord delights in us and they know that he does, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Now that, that's a different perspective, isn't it? They experience the same thing. They saw the same giants. They saw the same cities. And their perspective is, if the Lord delights in us, he's going to give it to us. Have you ever had that kind of perspective? Have you ever found that maybe, maybe it was a shift that you experienced when you went, you know what? But if God is for me, then who can be against me? Right? If, if God is leading me to do this, if God has commanded me to go and make disciples of all nations, then, then I can trust that God is going to provide for that, that God is going to enable me to do that. He's going to empower me to do that. Instead of me focusing on what I lack, I'm going to trust God for what he provides. Right? That's their perspective. If God delights in us, oh, that we would have a perspective as God's people who have trusted in Christ, that God delights in us because it changes the way we live. If I believe that God delights in me, now, now let me pause there for a moment because Paul would say, in me, there is nothing good. But God doesn't delight in me because of what I bring to the table. He delights in me because of what Christ brings to the table and I'm in Christ. If you are in Christ, God looks at you, he thinks of you, and he treats you through the lens of his son who is righteous and who has earned the very righteousness that he now gives to us. And so then it would be anything, it would be heresy then to say that God does not delight in me because then I would be saying that God does not delight in his son, Jesus. And so if I believe that God delights in me, because of Christ in me. Man, that changes the way I relate to God, doesn't it? That changes the way I approach God, doesn't it? That changes the way I live when I mess up, when I'm victorious. It changes all of that. But on the flip side, if I don't believe God delights in me, but instead I'm still living my life like I've got to earn God's delight, that changes the way I live. It changes the way I approach God. Instead of living with freedom and with joy, instead of operating by faith, I'm going to live by fear. I'm going to operate in a performance mentality where maybe I might be able to tip the cosmic scales if I'm good enough. But it's not about if I'm good enough. It's about was Christ good enough? And he was. And he is. And so these, these two men, they say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land. Verse 9, though. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. <laughs> Don't rebel, he says. What would be rebellion? Rebellion would be to, to back away in fear. Rebellion would be to not follow through on going into the land that God's leading you because you see giants in the land. If God is calling us to go forward and he's leading us to go forward, then for us to turn back would be to rebel. That's what he's saying to them. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. And then here's his perspective. Because again, your perspective is different if you're focused on God. Instead of feeling like grasshoppers before them, Joshua and Caleb says, they're like bread to us. I'm just gonna eat that up, right? They're, they're, they're nothing, right? They, they're, they're gonna be consumed by us. 
right? And that's the, the shift of perspective. We're not food for them. They're food for us. Their protection has turned aside from them, but the Lord is with us. That's an interesting statement. Their protection has turned aside from them because if God has given this land to his people and he's bringing his people into this land, those people are not gonna be able to withstand the Lord. The gods that those people trust in cannot withstand the Lord. Their protection has been removed from them. He says, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us, and that makes a huge difference, doesn't it? When, when we understand and when we live with that understanding that God is with his people, it changes the way we approach life. And listen, this is something that sets Christians, people that belong to God because they've trusted in Jesus, not just people who attend Christian churches, people who belong to God because you've trusted in Jesus, that's what sets you apart. God's presence is with you. We saw this last week. His spirit is inside of you and he never leaves you nor forsakes you. And so where you go, you are the temple of God. Where you go, the presence of God goes. Where you go, that's holy ground. Not because you're holy, not because I'm holy, but because God is with you. And that changes the way we live when we know God is with us. So do not fear them. There's a difference in the way we approach life when we focus on giants versus focusing on God. I wanna show you a set of verses, I already quoted them from the New Testament, Romans 8, 31, 32. See, here's Paul's perspective as he's speaking to a group of people who are experiencing persecution, who are experiencing trials. Romans chapter eight talks about various different types of trials, persecution that's the hand of people, but also the type of suffering that comes from living in a world that's impacted by sin where there's sickness, where there's disease, where there's death, where there's famines, where there's natural disasters. See, all of that is included in Romans chapter eight when Paul is talking about the suffering that they're enduring. And he's encouraging the people here. And he says, what then shall we say in verse 31, Romans eight thirty-one? what shall then we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is, by the way, nobody. Right? If you read that question and you're thinking, well, no, you've already, you've, already, you've already missed it. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. But Paul goes on and he says in verse 32, indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Do you understand how big of a deal that is? If God, who's for us, and nobody can be against us. If he who did not even spare his one unique son, Jesus, if he didn't spare his son for us, then how will he not give us everything that we need? That's how good God is to his children. That's how faithful God is to those who belong to him. How will he not, if you consider the greater thing, the greater thing is he did not withhold his own unique son, Jesus. He could have, right? But that's the greater thing that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not hold back. And if he didn't hold back in that, everything else is far less than that. If he didn't hold back in that, how then will his love not provide for us all that we need? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
When you focus on giants, you operate within your parameters. When you focus on God, you operate within his. There's never been a time where it's more important for us to operate within the parameters of God. It should be every day for us. But situations like what we're currently experiencing wake us up to the reality of our dependence upon God. Everybody, the, the whole world is, is aware that, that you cannot fight this sickness when, when it's coming and it's new and people are scrambling and the best of medicine is gonna come up with, with some solutions and some vaccines and some remedies perhaps. But listen, the, the thing that we're experiencing right now, this is what makes us human. We are experiencing the impact of sin and our bodies experience the impact of sin. And this will not be the last time that we experience something like this. It's not the first time either. Some of you have been through other situations like this. But we have a choice in where we focus. We have a choice in how we approach these things. And if you focus on giants, then you're going to operate within your own parameters and you will fail and you will give in to anxiety and you will give in to fear and you will give in to hopelessness. Perhaps you'll give in to some, some other things as well in an attempt to try to rid yourself of those things. But if you focus on God, then this situation that we're in and whatever else that you come facing, you're, you're going to see it in perspective of God's perspective. It's but a blip on the map. It's not a surprise to God. It never caught him off guard. And it's not something that is more powerful than he is. And so what is it today that God's calling you to do, but instead of following through and being obedient, you're looking at all the ways that you're limited. You're looking at all the reasons why you can't or shouldn't. And this morning, as we take a few moments to reflect, I'd, I'd encourage you to instead say, God, rid me of those things. Put them before him, confess them to him because that's not focusing on God. I remember Moses, Moses saying to God, God, I don't speak well. And God said, aren't I the one that made the mouth? That's what you need this morning to realize who you come before and who we serve as God. Others of you this morning, I don't know if you belong to God because if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you've, you've not trusted in Christ, then you're not a child of God. And that's, that's how John 1.12 said, for all who believe in Jesus, to those he gave the right to become children of God. This morning, what I hope you hear is that God is for his children. He's not a God who, who distances himself from people. Even though we're going through things that, that are, are causing us to suffer or we will go through things that cause us to suffer, that's not, a, that's not a question of God's presence because the reality is what God's people find as they trust in God is that he's with you in the midst of it. Sometimes he'll take you out of it. Sometimes he'll sustain you through it. But that's where our strength and our hope, our peace comes from. That's what sets us apart. And that's available to those who trust in Christ. That's available to those who belong to the family of God. He's a God who's for his children and he doesn't withhold in his love. Instead, he gives freely all things. So we could continue to hash this out about how we might apply this, but I'd, I think let's just give a few minutes here. Let's let the spirit work in this particular way now and ask him, Show me what it is that has my name on it today. 
What do you need to speak to me? What do I need to hear from you this morning? Where do I need to be comforted? Where do I need to be encouraged? For some of you, maybe it's, Lord, do I belong to you? Am I part of your family? And if not, it's responding to what Christ has done, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. So let's take a moment and go before the Lord. it would be good for us to sing that together and to vocalize that. So if you're able, will you stand and let's sing through that together. we are a people who need to be oriented toward you in heart and mind and in life and so make us that people let your spirit work in us to continue to shape and mold us to grow us that we'd be a people who deepen in our trust for you who despite what we see before us don't look at it and say but we feel like grasshoppers but instead we say if the lord delights in us he'll give it he'll do it let us be a people characterized by that kind of mentality so as you depart from here, with whatever we face in the next five minutes, one hour, days, or weeks, know that your God is for you. And he has not withheld his son. And if he has not withheld his son, he will not withhold everything that you need. So go to him. Trust him. Walk with him. And do it in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys.